Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in the negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we're going to hear from Rachel Eltz Downey, who sold her podcast production company, Share Your Genius, in an aqua hire deal. Now, for those of you who don't know, aqua hiring is the process of buying a company with the objective of securing the employees within it. And this has become quite popular amongst acquirers and truly a likely outcome for many small business owners today, which is why I wanted you to hear from someone who went through an aqua hire themselves. Now, big thanks to Rachel, who was candid and vulnerable throughout today's episode in sharing with us her journey. But before we get to the episode, a quick word from today's sponsor of the show, Scribe Media. You know, there's an old expression that the best businesses are bought, not sold. Meaning, when an acquirer approaches you, you're in the catbird seat, right? You've got negotiating leverage because they're coming to you. The question is, how do they find you? Well, acquirers typically target an industry. They're either rolling up an industry or have a specific need in a specific sector. And so they quickly search for who the leaders are in that industry. And if you've written the book on your industry, you bubble quickly to the surface. Now, what if you don't have time to write a book or maybe you're not just a writer? That's where Scribe Media can help. Scribe Media is the book publishing company responsible for bringing the visions of entrepreneurs like David Goggins, Nikki Barua, and Robert Glazier to life. And this is a strategy our own guests at Built to Sell Radio have pursued. You may recall James Ashford was episode 335. He's the guy behind the company Go Proposal. Now, he wanted to get known as a thought leader in the accounting industry. And so we wrote a book called Selling to Serve. And it was a few months later that one of the giants in the accounting industry, Sage, noticed the book, noticed James's company, and made him a healthy eight-figure acquisition offer. Look, writing a book can put your company on the map and you get bonus points from me if you co-write it with your second-in-command, your general manager, so that some of the brand buzz and equity accrues to your 2IC or your general manager, making sure your business doesn't come too dependent on you personally. Now, you may be saying, well, well, I'm not a writer, nor is my second-in-command for that matter. Well, no problem. Scribe Media lets you speak your book and then they will write it for you in your voice. Let me say that again. They will write it for you. When it's time to sell your business, buyers will know exactly who you are, what you stand for, and the legacy they'll inherit from the company you've built. Visit scribemedia.com and book your free consultation today. Also, during today's interview, Rachel referenced a personality test that she found helpful as a founder. So I have found that test and linked it for you in the show notes section over at builttosell.com. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about Rachel Eltz Downey, who, as I mentioned, started Share Your Genius to help companies amplify their brand through podcasting. Now, she grew this business to $500,000 in revenue before selling it in an aqua hire deal to one of her clients. Now, as you're listening to today's episode, I want you to look out for a little known goal setting technique that she utilizes. 
how she balanced the demands of running a business with the responsibility of parenting, how to let go of an underperforming employee without upsetting your customers, how to distinguish between serious burnout and normal fatigue, and how to avoid overlooking critical details during due diligence. Here to share with John the full story is Rachel Eltz Downey. Enjoy. Rachel Alts Downey, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me. Tell me a little bit about Share Your Genius. How did you start this company? So the uh, long story made short is I started this company inside the walls of a NICU um, hospital. Wow. So that is kind of how I got into it. My daughter arrived into the world three months early, found myself trying to figure out how to create an income while staying at the hospital a lot. Podcasting was an answer to a problem, and I realized it was something that a lot of companies and brands should be doing, and so I went all in on that. And what was the business model? When I started? So (laughs) when I started the company, um, to be totally transparent, somebody had reached out to me, a colleague who was my first business partner, and he had reached out to me and he said, I'm launching a podcast. Can you help me promote it? And I said, sure, because I could do it at any time, anywhere. And um, I started helping him promote it and quickly saw the success that it was helping him achieve with his own brand and business. And so fast forward a little bit, um, I went to him and I said, hey, man, (laughs) I think there's something here and um, maybe we should go all in on podcasting. And originally, I thought I was going to go all in in terms of like doing like guest placement, like finding people to put on podcasts, more of a talent play. Because at the time, professionally, I was doing some freelance work and I was in law school. And I was like, oh, maybe I can do some, I don't know, talent management or whatever. Like you don't know when you're trying to figure stuff out. And um, as he and I got started together, we realized we could sell an actual podcast and not necessarily the podcast, quote unquote, tour. And so that's how the business really got started. So when you say sell a podcast, you're, you mean you offer to produce a podcast for an outsider? Some, somebody would come to you and say, can you please produce my podcast for me? Yeah. So in the early days, I would have conversations and I would say, um, are you like, if you're looking to create, I, what was my tagline? Oh my gosh. If you're looking to create meaningful relationships um, tell stories worth sharing and build community, you should launch a podcast. And, and so you com- would help them do that. Yeah. So companies would hire us to develop the show. And this is still true today. Companies will hire us and they did at the time to develop their show strategy and then also execute on the production and amplification of that asset. Do you mind if I ask you some like questions about your personal life? Please. So it strikes me as interesting that you had a child in the NICU while you're at law school. That says to me that your child may not have been expected because someone doesn't go to law school and go through the whole, <laughs> the whole arduous of like going to law school, articling if they're about to start a family. So am I right that this was not necessarily the grand plan and this was a bit of a happy surprise? Am I reading between the lines correctly or no? I, I think so, but I think the thing you need to know about me is that I live accidentally on purpose. Okay. And so what I mean by that is um, I I move forward in the direction of what I'm looking to achieve, but I don't do it so rigidly that I don't keep myself fluid to the possibilities that life has. 
Um, was my first child a plan? No. That being said, I also had two more children during the during the building of the company. And it was um, and it has been one of the greatest blessings and most challenging periods of my entire life because of that. Growing a family and growing a business at the same time is not easy. Yeah, I would imagine. But the reason I ask specifically is I'm I'm really curious about your motivation in starting a business as opposed to going to law school because Mm -hmm. it plays into how you exit your company. And as listeners will find out, it was somewhat of an unusual exit. And I think it really helps to know what the motivation circumstances were at the very beginning uh, because that might help us inform some of your decision-making in who you chose to exit to and how you approached that, which is why I asked the question. Super helpful. Thank you for going there with me. So you've got this new business, this new baby, and you're juggling both. I'm assuming the colleague or partner that you referenced in the beginning was Jim Brown. This is yes. the, your, your partner in the business. Okay. How did you divvy up responsibilities? Like what was your area? What was his area? Um, to be totally honest, and Jim would back me on this. He was like, if you want to do this, go do it. And he was kind of my, um, he was kind of my, I, I would always call him like my net. Um, but at the same point, he was almost like my Jiminy Cricket. Like I could go to him with like any question. Um, his, he was running a sales coaching company at the time, which was, I think one of the greatest blessings that we had as an early company is because we thought about sales and revenue almost more than anything. So I was out building relationships you know, generating revenue so that I could do the other things that we wanted to do. And that was critical to us being successful. How'd you guys divvy up the equity? Um, initially it was, um, initially I had no equity actually. Um, initially it was a sweat equity type deal. Like I had to earn it and, um, he paid me. I mean, we, we talked through all these details. Um, it was like, what was the minimum you needed to survive? Cause he was taking a bet on whether I could turn this into a real business or not. And he gave me six months. He said, what's the minimum you need to survive? And I came up with what that number was because I was in law school at the time too. Um, had the new baby, like you said. And um, he said, let's, let's give it six months and see what happens. And then equity evolved and grew over time. Got it. And how did you, did you have some sort of formula that informed your equity stake. Like in some of these deals where it's kind of sweat equity, I've seen it's like, hey, if we reach this milestone, then I I get X equity. If we reach this milestone, I get two X this, right? You know, like I get more as I reach my did you guys have it milestone based or or was it more informal? It it was kind of both. So I would say it it was we had nothing legally documented. This was a friendship turned business relationship turned whatever you want to call it. You know what I mean? Like just, it was very much based on the relationship value that we had in each other. Um, but we did, we kind of had a system that we, um, I don't know whose system it is, but it's, we did a MPV. So it was like minimums, primaries and visionaries. And so the minimums were like, what's the minimum the company has to make in order for us to say this is a, a business that we're con- going to continue. And those minimums were based on things like how much money does Rachel want to make each year? Um, because I was the primary kind of, he wasn't pulling money from the company. So he was kind of like, he, he gave me the opportunity to get paid. He gave me the infrastructure to develop this thing, to go out into the marketplace, to guide me, et cetera. But he wasn't making money from it. It was my, it was my opportunity to create 
a job for myself to get salary. And then there were incentives along the way to help me get in more ownership. Walk me through that acronym. I've never heard that. Yeah. Uh, I think a minimum viable product, which is what I thought you were going to say, but it's yeah, different. Totally. Minimum primary. Visionary. What's the third one? Vision? Visionary. Yeah. So okay. it was like. I've never heard this before. So, um, and we don't operate this way now, but I, I personally enjoyed it because it was like, the minimum is like your, um, it's your base. Like what has to happen? Like to sure. have a business. The primary is what you want to have happen. So minimum is like your doors, your doors stay open, the lights stay on. Primary is like, we're going to, this is pretty much what we think we're going to achieve. A little bit challenging, but we're going to grow. And then visionary is like, man, if we, if we're just crushing it, this is what visionary looks like. And then he and I had developed incentives where it was like salary, equity, and distribution. So, or profit. Excellent. At each of those three milestones. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And the milestones were top line revenue based, bottom line profit based. How, what were the milestones attached to? Uh, initially, they were top line revenue. Got it. And because it was fairly high margin business, there weren't a lot of fixed costs or, or variable costs. It was mostly your time, I'm guessing. Yeah. And maybe I'm wrong. No, 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 you're right. I mean, the company grew over time and that kind of changed. But um, I don't want to discredit at all what we were doing from a maturity perspective, but we weren't, we didn't overcomplicate it from the business standpoint. Like we were just like, is this a real thing? You know what I mean? Like, um, and so that's what we did is we were like, let's just, let's just go with this as our, our roadmap. And then he and I really went into business together because we wanted it to be a lifestyle business. And so, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. that was, uh, that was a big, that was actually a big crux of this whole conversation of how we kind of moved forward in separate paths. Um, so originally it was a lifestyle business and it was, it was honestly, it was like, how much money do I want to make every year? And we designed the business to help fuel that goal for myself. And then he would pull whatever he needed out as we went. That's really interesting because I don't know Jim, uh, but from what little you've told me about him, a sales trainer, like I couldn't think of a more, um, you know, goal oriented, you know, got to get to the next level kind of person. Like if you're going to get into sales training, that's usually you're pretty goal oriented. So was he thinking, did he share your view that it was a vision, a lifestyle business or was he, did that change at some point or, or was he in the same page as you were? Yeah. So I don't want to, I don't want to completely speak for him, but I also believe that what I'm saying is true. Um, he didn't do this because he loved podcasting. He did this because he believed that I could be great. And this was an opportunity for him to actually invest in somebody else. And so he, we really did go into this like a lifestyle business. Did he push me? Oh my gosh, yes. Um, did he challenge my thinking? Oh my gosh, yes. Did we have goals that were lofty and hard? Yes. But everything was anchored back on like, but what do you want? Mm. What do you actually want? And, um, and we, during the journey of our business, I mean, he... He went and spent a year abroad. Every single month, he lived in another country with his family. And so we truly were like, how do we create a company where we can be nomads, where we can be anywhere we want to be and try and figure out life? Um, and a lot of that was because of the origin story is I had just had this baby. I had no idea what my schedule was going to look like. I had no idea what her life or her needs were going to look like. And so it, it was non-traditional because everything about it was non-traditional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got it. And so in the early days of the business, it, it was, I need flexibility. Uh, then there was this nomad piece that came in, like, I want to be able to move around and travel. I don't want to be stuck tied to one you know, situation. Did, 
how did that evolve over time as the business grew? Did that change your desire for lifestyle and flexibility? Did that change or how did that evolve over time? Yeah. So I think a couple of things happened. Um, one is just as a, as a person and as a company, you start to mature and you also start to gain some market, um, opportunity because you've had enough nods that you're doing the right thing that more people show up to your door. And so there was this natural tension that happened where it was like, do I start telling people that I'm capped out or do we start to build infrastructure and, and process and grow so that we can service more clients and, you know, elevate our expertise in the marketplace. Um, and that was a real challenge is like, what do we want? And that was, that was the constant conversation of like, what do you want, Rachel? Because I was the one leading the company. He had no desire to lead the company. He was on to his next entrepreneurial pursuit. Um, and so I lost my train of thought. Um, well, it's interesting. My question was at what point it did that evolve over time, your desire for a lifestyle business. I think you were nibbling at the edges there it, just a moment ago where you're like, you know, we reached a point where demand was high. People were asking for us. And, and I was getting to a point where I was personally running out of time in my day. And you had that inflection point, which I think a lot of our listeners identify with, which is like, if I just kick it into low gear here, I can have a lifestyle business, right? Like I can do my thing, have lots of flexibility and, and make a good living, but I'm not going to become the next big company. I'm just going to have a lifestyle business. Or you can double down, pour all the, you know, the excess profit into building the business because there's some sort of, you know, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It sounded like you were at that inflection point. Did, yes. Did you? Yeah. So I appreciate that. Like, so, so yeah. So, um, that was the inflection point. And I think ultimately, and I, and I don't mean to be, um, crass or whatever. I'm just being hyperly self-aware mm -hmm. when it came down to it, I could have made a very good living staying within the capacity of me and a couple really good contractors. Mm -hmm. But I felt as if I would never reach my potential if I did that. Um, it doesn't mean I wouldn't have created great content. It doesn't mean I would have built great relationships, but I was hungry for more. And where I'm saying I was self-aware is that I was hungry for more and my ego would not shut up. And so I literally was like, okay, people seem to like what we're doing. So why would I stop doing it? Or why would I do less, I guess? Um, so my appetite got bigger, I guess I would say. Tell me more about that. Have you unpacked your, look, I, we all have egos. I, I, I have one. I think everybody has one to some extent. We like to feel like we're making a contribution that we're, we're, we're masters of our little domain or whatever. And I, and I wonder in your case, have you ever unpacked where that comes from? where that desire to achieve, to be seen is from? Have you ever sort of unpacked that in your own life? Well, yeah, and I think there's a couple of things there. One is I don't necessarily have a desire to achieve. So I think there's, I think there's, um, I think oftentimes we think of people who are successful, quote unquote, based on paper or whatever, and they think it's because they're motivated, motivated by achievement. Um, I'm actually not motivated that way. Um, I'm more motivated by, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm more motivated by what example I'm leaving behind. So mm. I chose that word ex example specifically because I'm not necessarily thinking about legacy. Um, 
if we go back to the early days of why I started the company, I did it out of need to provide for my daughter in a way that I wasn't planning on providing for. Well, what ended up happening over that time is not only did I have that daughter, but I had a second daughter and I had a son. So over the span of the business, I had three more children. And what I, and my first daughter very specifically, when she was born, she was born without her lower left leg. Mm. And I bring that up because very obviously she's going to have some obstacles that might give her excuses to not do X, Y, or Z. And I, when I had these opportunities of like, do I just stay safe and build this lifestyle business because it's fun and I like it and I can make a ton of money and blah, blah, blah. Or there's more and I'm kind of hungry for it. And also I felt like I could show my daughters and my son, but very specifically my daughter, um, my firstborn, that like there's no ceiling that you can't break. There's nothing that can hold you back. You have so much potential in the world and you can continue to move forward. And I just wanted to be an example of that for my daughters specifically as a woman, as a business leader. So that's where I'm saying like part of it was ego, but part of it was also like, what do I want to show them on what a woman looks like? Gosh, I love that. I, I, I think that is, uh, thank you for sharing that by the way. And also I think that is an incredibly personal and also uh, deeply motivating insight for a lot of our listeners. There's something funny about having kids and I've got kids and, and it, it screws with the mind, man. It, it, you know, like before kids, I, I was fair. I was, it, you know, I was out to achieve, right. As you point out. Right. And I, I have thankfully not had to have some of the same challenges that you described, but at the same time, I do personally think about my kids and I want them to see someone who, you know, is able to overcome challenges and is, is ambitious and is, and is, you know, organized all the things you hope they will be, or I hope they will be as kids, as they grow up. I also, uh, try to live intentionally that way, uh, less because I want to achieve the next rung on the ladder, but more because I want them to see somebody that I hope they will become one day. So thank you for sharing that. I, I, uh, I don't really have a question, but just more of a thank you for sharing. Well, I think, but I think that's exactly right, John. It's like, it's less about sort of like rings on the ladder or whatever rungs on a ladder. And it is, um, of course, no, of course, sorry about that. <laughs> that's okay. Um, no worries. Like this person literally has not called me in two years. That's really weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but what I was saying is, um, what, what I think is interesting about what you said is like, it truly does come to come down to like the impact you're leaving. And instead of me being like, Oh, I can impact all of these people who don't know me and I want them to notice me. That's not, that's not what's motivating to me. It's how can I leave a, an example for my children on what is possible? Because, you know, my background is blue collar, you know what I mean? Like my parents didn't really go to college. It wasn't like our thing, like corporate stuff that wasn't, that wasn't our journey. You know what I mean? And so it was just like, I wanted to kind of change the direction a little bit for my own family tree. Um, so that was kind of the motivation there. Uh, and the last thing I'll say, and you can cut this if you want to, if it's not relevant, but, um, one of the things that I've spent a lot of time doing over the course of my life is just trying to figure out who I am. Like a lot of people do, but leaning into it more from a self-awareness standpoint so I can maximize my strengths and things like that. But one of the personality um, uh, tests that I like is the Enneagram. 
And I don't know that one. Enneagram? Enneagram. Okay. Um, and it's really interesting. So I'm an Enneagram 7. And Enneagram 7s, one of their greatest fears is missing out on opportunities. Hmm. And so when I think about that, I'm like, well, no wonder I stopped wanting to do a lifestyle business because I was like, I can't say no to an opportunity if it's in front of me. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. some of those tools are helpful, I think, as business leaders as they start to figure out what, what's driving their motivations. That's so cool. And we'll put that in the show notes uh, at BuildSell.com. I've never actually heard of that. So we'll do a bit of research and, and, uh, and link that up. So how did the business change Again, in the early days, it sounded like it was mostly a service business, your time. That changed and evolved as you started to grow it. Just give me the, the economic model here. So a client would come to you and say, I want a podcast. Did, did you have like a silver, gold, and platinum package that you offered them? Or like, how did you, how did you structure your business model? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. So my business model is actually very similar today. It's just that my packages have gotten a lot clearer. Um, but ultimately, what people would do is they would buy um, a season, like a pilot season with us. And then, and it's based on what they're trying to accomplish, et cetera. And then they would choose an ongoing production package plan with us, again, based on what they were trying to accomplish. Um, I would say the biggest pivot in our business from the day it started to where it is today is we say that we create outcome-driven shows. So we focus less on these are the deliverables that we're going to give you. And we're not competing with freelance editors or people who can crank out millions of pieces of content because it doesn't really matter unless it's tied to a specific objective or outcome. So we've gotten a little bit um, stronger in our positioning in the marketplace. We've gotten really clear on our packages. But to be honest, the business model itself hasn't really changed that much. Pricing has changed. Um, We know our clientele a lot better and we've got two very clear types of clients. And so we what what are the ideal clients? What are the two profiles? Yeah. So we've got really we've got two. We have one that is more of your solopreneur or um, hobbyist thought leader, sort of somebody who's kind of doing it on their own or with a very small marketing team. And we have a solution for them. And the other solution or other persona is more of a content or head of brand. Uh, typically for a B2B company, and they're looking to use their show to drive brand and engagement. And so we partner with them in what we call our producer model. Um, So one is more of a DIY with some production, and one is more of a hands-on production and marketing support. And are you ever the host of the show, or is the host always the the client effectively? You're in the background, or are you ever in the foreground? Do you know what I mean? I'm never in the foreground, but we do have talent on our team that might jump on the mic to help uh, smooth things out or add some color, things like that. Yeah. Got it. Okay. As a sort of a co-hosting role, so to speak. Yeah. That's helpful. Give people a sense of the trajectory. So 2017, you're you're in the NICU. You start. Uh, where do you get in terms of revenue before you decide to sell? What, like, where are you top line? How many? Oh, you know, whatever you're comfortable sharing. Yeah. So, um, I, I'm going to try to remember, but if I'm off, it's not that big of a deal. Um, I mean, it was pretty much like double. We we doubled year over year. Um, I mean, our first year was like less than 100K. And then all of a sudden it was like close to 200. And then again, like three, four. Um, And I remember there was, um, 
I remember two instances. One, it was after I had my second kid. I was on a plane and like, I know you're a guy, but you have kids. And I was like pumping on this plane because my baby was like six, seven weeks old. And I was going into Texas for this kickoff meeting with a client. And um, I just remember it distinctly because of all those things going on at the time. But I remember being so excited because I had had my first um, monthly billings of like 26000 And yeah. it was like, I could not imagine that much money that I was billing. Like it was just, it was crazy to me um, that we were billing that much. And um, that was in 2018. Um, and then I remember then this past year, and this is this would be the year after the sell, we billed more in a month that we had than we had billed in our like second year. And I just wow. those two, those two moments stood out to me because I was like, wait a minute, like that took time. But to imagine like billings at that level was just unfathomable. And I just reflected on it because in both of those scenarios, I was going to Texas and I don't know what was going on during Isn't that. that. Interesting. But it so was now, really interesting. Yeah. So circa 2023, the business is a seven figure, mm -hmm. low seven figure business, it sounds like. Yep. But something happened before that. Uh, and we're like, love to get into that now, yep. which is that you uh, were acquired effectively. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so let's talk about that. So where were you? Like, was there a triggering event that that caused you to be open to the idea of being acquired? Um, I think it was what everyone will say in the next five years. I think it was COVID. Um, mm. What I experienced during that time. So what happened in? So let me back up for just a second. So twenty. So twenty eighteen, we were starting to gain some traction. I started to see some real success. I was feeling like financially I was going to be able to actually do things in my life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is real. Um, I decided to drop out of law school at that point. Like, I was all in on this. Um, at the end of 2018, I had one of those dark soul of the night moments, dark night of the soul moments that every business owner has where you wake up and you're just like, what am I doing? Um, and I had that moment. It was the end of 2019. And what came out of that dark night of the soul was I let go of my entire team in January 2020. I let them all go because I felt like to build a business I had a vision for building, I didn't have the right people in the right seats and they didn't have a desire to go where I wanted to go. Um, that was extremely difficult. Lo and behold, COVID happens. So that was January 2020. March, really, the world kind of shut down. And what happened is there was an actual turning point in our business. I was no longer kind of hustling and meeting with everyone that I could and trying to sell everything that I could kind of deal. All of a sudden, people were coming to me. So people I had been trying to talk to or, or people I had met with two years before that were showing up saying, hey, Rachel, I remember you talking to me about this thing. Hey, our budget on events is gone. So we're going to repurpose it. Are you still doing this? Can you help us? So all of a sudden, I let go of my entire team. And I started getting a, a ton of inbound mm. because of all the hustle and bustle I had been doing for the last, you know, three years. Um, so that was going on. Jim, my partner, had moved to um, moved out of the state that we were living. He moved to Colorado. And he was starting his next entrepreneur journey. 
And so I felt like I was more on an island than I had ever felt before. And it was it's not a detriment to him. It was just the nature of everything that was going on. Um, and of course, I'm pregnant with my third kid. And so I was just feeling like I'm alone. People want to buy. If I tell them, yes, this is not going to be a lifestyle business. You know what I'm saying? So it was like all of those things compounding. And then um, I had a client come in and she, I respected the heck out of her. She had four kids of her own. She had been running a marketing agency for 17 years. This is Tiffany. This is Tiffany. She's married. She's older than me, wiser than me, all the things, you know, and um, she had also just had a baby. So we had all these things sort of in common and we started spending time together on her show, but then outside of her show. And um, it was kind of a quasi mentorship relationship. And ultimately what I realized is that I was hungry for um, growth, but from a new and different perspective. And I was hungry for somebody who kind of was living a life that I was experiencing And so when we were having conversations and I was casting sort of my vision for the company, she was like, would you be ever, would you ever be interested in having a a new partner or an additional partner? And that's how the conversation started. And where does it go from there? So that's a pretty big bond to um, lay down for a client to say that would like, tell me more about where it went. Well, to be fair in that moment, um, I had shared with her that I was kind of hungry for more and had thought about what it might look like to get acquired. So it's not like she just like asked me to marry her without her knowing (laughs) that. Um, So when that happened, I just, I remember I was just like, um, I said, yeah, I said, yeah, let me, I need to talk to Jim. Um, Jim was a majority owner and was still the majority owner when we parted ways. Um, my ownership had grown at that point, but he was still majority. Um, and so honestly, I called Jim. I kind of told him what was going on. I told him the conversation that we had. Um, and he asked me what I wanted. He was like, what do you want? Because if we go back to the beginning of this, um, he it was not about what he wanted. I mean, it was. like He had to make his money and it had to be worthwhile for him. But he cared about what I wanted genuinely. Um, from the beginning. And so that's what he asked again is he said, what do you want? And then the proceedings began. How did you answer Jim's question? He said, what do I, what do I want? And I answered him directly. And I said, um, I, what did I say? I think I said, I would like this to work out with her. And what did that mean for you? That meant that he and I would no longer be partners. I get that, but I guess where I'm, uh, he's saying, what do you want? Oh, oh. Presumably it's like, I want X money. I want Y salary. I want Z and equity or whatever. Like, how did you answer that? Yeah. So outside of this is what I want in terms of just moving forward with Tiffany and help having her help me grow and mentor me. Um, then we started talking about, okay, what, what are you willing to give up? Because you're going to have, something's going to have to change if that happens. Um, and so for me, I mean, it's so interesting. If I were giving advice to somebody that wasn't me, like looking back, I wish I had been more clear on what I very specifically wanted from a financial perspective, from an equity perspective, from a role perspective. Um, I just didn't know the questions to ask. 
And I'm the kind of person who has to live through things in order to learn them, unfortunately. Um, so at, the, at that time, I said, I want to maintain the salary or grow it. I would like to maintain the equity I have today. And I want some cash. So, I mean, I, I said I wanted all those things. Was I going to get them? Not necessarily. Um, but I did say that that's what I wanted. And um, and yeah. How, how much revenue was the business doing ballpark to the extent that you're comfortable sharing for the calendar year 2019? So this is the year leading up to when you fired all your staff and then COVID happened. Like, I'm thinking of like trailing 12 months. Was it a few hundred grand? Like if um, I was, it was, I, th- I think it was around for 50. Got it. Okay. That, Maybe that's a little fair. less. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. So call it a half Maybe a million a little dollars more. around yeah. numbers, top, you know, top line. Did you have any sense of what that was worth in the marketplace? Like, did you have any no. clue what it might be worth as a business? <laughs> No. Okay. No. D- but did Jim probably? Yeah. To be did fair. He, did he share with you what what he thought it might be worth? Yes, he did. Um he did and he I don't I don't remember the formula he gave me, but he had he had some ideas of what we could potentially do. Yeah. And what it, what was the do you, do you recall anything about that? Like do you remember either sort of how he was thinking about valuation or or what the number was or but like anything from, from Jim's perspective how what how he kind of thought about it? I believe it was based on um a value it was an x factor of the EBITDA. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And do you recall what the EBITDA would have been on on the 450 at that point? No, and I should know this, but to be honest like the role he played, and you asked at the beginning, the role he played was the more of that um, kind of, I almost want to say like traditional pr- presidential role is like managing mm-hmm. the finances, managing the accounting and the, and the, the systems, if you will. And mm-hmm. I was just out making it happen. You know what I mean? I do. I do for sure. And, and earning sort of sweat equity as the business grew yep. over time. Yeah. Makes sense. So, so uh, actually, can I even say there though, like, so if yeah. I were, again, if I were to, I know that the people listening don't necessarily need or want advice, but if I were to give myself advice mm-hmm. back then, and I'm, I'm executing on that, this advice now is like, I wouldn't be so scared of digging into the finances. Um, I felt like I, I trust Jim with my entire soul, but, um, I should have done a better job of seeking education myself. And making sure that I understood all of the details of what we were doing and how we were doing it and what all of these numbers meant. Um, so now I do that. But at the time, I didn't, I didn't do any of that. Why do you view that as a, as a mistake that you learned from? Like- I view it as a mistake because um, I did not feel empowered to be a critical thinker other than what is motivating me. So from like a business perspective, I didn't feel like I had the acumen to even hang in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And had you, how did that impact you in the negotiation, not having the business acumen to, to sort of hang with the rest of the I don't think it, I don't think it negatively impacted me because Jim was, um, was my advocate. Like he was like, again, this sounds so silly, but like he was literally team Rachel. Like so I completely trusted him, you know what I mean? And making sure that I was taken care of in a way that was like logical and reasonable and still made the deal happen. 
Um, but I still, looking back, I still think that I would have been more astute in my way of even handling the employment agreement with the new company. Um, I'm happy with how everything's turned out, but there's just things I didn't think about. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't think to ask. I didn't think to, I didn't think to think about, to be honest. And again, I, I'm asking this not to pry, but to, yeah. because the, the goal is to share f- for folks who are maybe in a similar situation. So, you know, what are some of the things, or maybe even just one thing that you didn't think to think about that, that if you were to go through it again, as it relates to designing your employment agreement that you might suggest somebody think about? Um, really specifically the role that you're going to play. Um, you know, the company was, is, was mature, is evolving and it's still evolving, but, um, I did not advocate for the role that I wanted in the company long term. Part of it was because I just didn't, again, think to think about it. And that wasn't Jim's job to really think about either. You know what I mean? His job was to help me get this deal done. But as I was turning the next chapter, I didn't do a good enough job of getting clarity on that. And how has that impacted you? Um, It has worked itself out, but it impacted me by having to have a lot of uh, tough conversations, um, Mm -hmm. which sucks. (laughs) Like conflict is never fun, even if it's productive. (laughs) Yeah, 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 for sure. So what role were you playing with Tiffany as it relates to this negotiation? It sounded like Jim was involved. Yep. So were you at the table during this conversation with Tiffany or how did, how, how did that go down? Yeah, so there were several conversations, um, one between her and I, and then um, lots of emails back and forth with everyone, like collecting information and things like that. Um, I know they had a separate conversation that I knew they were having, but that had to do more with the final numbers mm-hmm. and sort of like, what were this, what were we going to, where were we going to end up? Um, I was not in that meeting, but that was the only one I wasn't in. Um, and what was, what was Tiffany offering? Like what was the offer effectively? Um, what was the offer? Well, we, we talked about a couple of different things. So one was going to be just like essentially kind of a buyout. Um, you know, she, she had some challenges on the valuation and things like that. Um, she is an extremely smart businesswoman, which is exactly what I was looking for. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the other option we had talked about was a sort of um, performance-based um, what was, what would you call that? It was like a performance-based acquisition. So it would be like, one thought was like, Jim would maybe stay a part of things and we would get like a slower burn payout um, based on milestones and things like that. But ultimately that started to just feel really messy and um, it made more sense to do more of a buyout. And um, I won't share like the specific numbers, but I will share that the way that we negotiated some of that was cash, um, like cash from obviously her purchasing, but then the assets and cash that we had in the bank. Um, and that was a, I think that was a really smart move because it gave us, you know, more money to take away from the company than what the, the than what the cash offer would have just been. Right. So, so the, the cash component of the deal, if I'm reading between the lines was the, the cash you had in your operating account, 
plus some extra that amalgam was the cash component of the deal. Exactly. Yep. Got it. And then you and Jim split that cash, I'm assuming, commensurate with your equity shareholdings or whatever. Yeah. And I know, and I, and I, and I know it was like a little, again, it kind of goes back to the fact that we had a good relationship. So I don't think it was like split to the, to the, to the, uh, T on that in the sense of like, I think that was a little bit more equitable, um, mm. especially like the cash in the bank kind of deal. But mm -hmm. yeah. Got it. And then, so there was a, there was a cash component and then what else, what other consideration to use an M and A term <laughs> did yeah. you receive for, for pa like passing over your shares to the company? Um, I mean, we, it was salary and then, um, and then there was a performance plan with ownership earned again. Okay. So, Got it. So yep. they, did they, so they, the, 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 the business itself, your share, your genius still exists today and you are still a shareholder of it. Yes. Uh, even though the new owner has, uh, recapitalized the business yes. as, uh, as they say, but Got I it. had to re-earn it. So I earned okay. it on the, the day that we started and I earned it the day that I sold it. <laughs> Got it. Because when you say re-earned it, you started from scratch, you were paid out and now it's like, okay, now we got to hit these milestones. And again, yeah. under Tiffany, were the milestones similar in the sense that they were kind of revenue-based milestones or did yeah. you have different revenue? They were revenue-based um, for the first year. Um, and then, you know, we're still working. And honestly, we're still working out some of our long-term strategy of how we, um, how we divvy up things. So that's what we did this first year. You can ask me next year what we, what we actually land on. Got it. Got it. And, and if you had it to do over again, what might you do beyond just becoming more conversant on the finances side of the, what might you change about the way you approach that negotiation? I would, I would have more confidence in, in myself. And what I mean by that is, um, and Jim had said it to me, but again, I have to experience things often to learn them. But he, he had told me, he said, look, he said, you can have these conversations and we can move forward with this. But I just want you to know that in the next 12 to 18 months, you're going to have something totally different than what you have today. And he was right, which means that I didn't need to do what I did in order to have the growth that we have had. Um, I don't regret anything. I'm not saying that. Like all of the things that happened needed to happen. But I think that if I had r really believed that to be true, I would have probably felt more confident in the things that I wanted as opposed to feeling like I needed to negotiate them out. If that makes sense. Um, I think I would have stand, I stood my ground a little bit stronger with more confidence. Let me see if I understand what, what you're saying. So, so Jim said to you, look, you're going to be able to grow this business. You don't need to sell it. Effectively. Yeah. You could, we could keep growing. And you're like, no, no, Jim, I feel like an Island. I'm all by myself. I'm like, oh, I need, I need some, you're off in Colorado. And he's like, okay, fine. But trust me, you're going to get two years down the road and and you're going to know that we could have done this without being acquired. Am I getting, am I, yeah, am like, I yes. it back correctly? Exactly. I mean, it, it literally was a choice. It was like, he was like, you can continue to grow this business the way that you're doing it. And it can still be very lifestyle driven and you can still grow it and not have to say no to everything. And he's like, or 
you can go be great and go this, do this journey. And she's going to probably help you get there faster. And she's also going to mentor you in a way that I can't because of who she is and who you are. You know what I mean? Um, so he kind of like painted both paths for me. And I ultimately said, I'm ready for a new chapter um, because I love opportunities and I love challenges and adventure. And so I did do that. Um, where I think if I, if I'm reflecting back, I think, I think I still would have made the same choice that I made, but just having more confidence in who I am and what I'm offering to a investor and an owner. I wish I had had that foresight to be like, no, like she's getting something really good. You know what Mm. I mean? mean? And I didn't, I did not show up that way. That's super helpful. What was Jim's reaction to your decision to move forward with Tiffany? Um, He was very supportive. Like we went to Cabo. I mean, we celebrated and we were like, we're going to build another business together in a couple of years. What was the lowest point emotionally you reached during the, the exit process? And I'll invite you to think about like from the moment you met Tiffany right through to today, like what would you say would be the lowest point emotionally you reached? I think, I mean, there's so many, <laughs> like, I mean, being a, an entrepreneur, being a business leader, being an owner, there's so many valleys. Um, it's specific to the decision. Yeah. That I, I think it's, I think it's control. Um, I think realizing that you actually, you, even though you're still in the seat of sort of the leader, um, you have lost the ability to act autonomously. Because with Jim, you had, you called your own shots. I mean, he sounds like he was the most supportive yes. co-owner on the planet. Yeah, and I'm not saying she's not. I'm not saying that at all. But um, but there's more layers to it now. Um, mm-hmm. Where before it would be like, you sure you want to do that? He just kind of made sure I didn't mess up. That's all he did. And I think I naively thought that's what was going to be the case in any other situation. Um, and like I said... There's nothing I'm complaining about. Um, but that's the thing that's been the most challenging to understand is like, I have to let go of control. Um, and I have to also realize that it's, it's not really my decision anymore. I mean, it <laughs> is, I can, but it's not. Yeah. 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 What was the highest emotional point you reached during the process of exiting? The highest? I think yeah. just realizing I built something worthy of somebody wanting to buy. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, good. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I imagine. Did you, did you turn to any books? I mean, I know some of the technical stuff you, you, you relied on Jim for, but were there like, were there any, any resources that you could point people to that you relied on to kind of educate yourself about the process of exiting? No, this is what I'm telling you. I should have done that. Um, <laughs> I kind of knew the answer. No, I know. I just, I just trusted my gut, honestly. Um, but I, sh- what I, what I should have done is at least talk to a couple people who had done it before, um, just to see or listen to your show. <laughs> <laughs> what about a? Uh, a trophy to commemorate the win. Did you, I know you went to Cabo with Jim, which sounds amazing. Was there anything that you bought yourself? Uh, I'm a big believer in physical ways to commemorate wins. Was there a trophy at all that you uh, you bought? 
Um, I will be so honest with you. So I paid off, I paid off any of my private loans. I paid off our car. Um, and I got my eyebrows done. <laughs> that is all I did. <laughs> These eyebrows, courtesy of <laughs> Tiffany at uh, the And it's, it's literally just like micro threading. It's like nothing. It's not anything even like cosmetically in- interesting. But it was like eight hundred dollars, and that was a lot of money. <laughs> so eight hundred dollar eyebrows. That's yes, because it's microblading. As you can see, I've never had the eight hundred dollar investment <laughs> in mind. Uh, this is uh, this is super fun. Where can people learn about the business? Because you continue to do great stuff at Share Your Genius. So, um, what's the website? Where can people get in touch with you? Yeah, so shareyourgenius.com. Um, I have a podcast called Voicemails with Rachel. And so if you're interested about the things that I'm thinking about and I'm getting people to answer questions I have, I do it in a very short, um, consumable format that fits my lifestyle. And um, I'm a big, um, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So if you look for me, I'm Rachel Eltz Downey. The reason I use Eltz is because there are no other Rachel Elses in the world, and there are about a million Rachel Downies. So that is that is why we we use it. <laughs> nice, and I'll put uh, Rachel Elts Downies LinkedIn profile in the show notes <laughs> so you can connect up to Rachel. Thank you for doing this, Rachel. It was super fun. Yes, likewise. Thanks, John. And there you have it for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed John's conversation today with Rachel. If you did and you're not subscribed to the podcast, be sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Just a note as well, you can watch this full video interview over at YouTube. Our channel is at Built to Sell Radio, where there you have the chance to kind of see some of the emotions and facial expressions throughout the interview, which I find quite enjoyable. So I will link to our YouTube channel I will link to everything referenced in today's episode, including the personality test and definitions for some of the more technical terms over the show notes page, which can be found at builttosell.com. If you know of someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on the podcast, you can nominate them by heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate. There you have the chance to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio and video engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. I look forward to talking to you again next week.